0: Ezekiel chapter 24. We are not far away from making a pretty dramatic shift in our prophecy studies. Studying the book of the prophet Ezekiel, so much of what Ezekiel has spoken, in fact all the way through chapter 24, what he speaks are prophecies of judgment of the impending doom of Jerusalem. And explaining that both to the exiles but also in teachings that would make their way back to the land that people would understand this is coming, this is happening, it's not, it's not a false start here. And the exile is already there to understand this is not a short-term deal. So it's heavy, a lot of heaviness. Wednesday night, if you were here Wednesday night, you may have gone home with a heavy heart because the prophecies land in such a heavy place. But the good news is that over the next few chapters, there will be a handful of laments and judgments on the surrounding nations. We'll move quickly through those. But we hit about chapter 33 of Ezekiel, and it is all future prophecy. And it will get very interesting. And following that, the book of Daniel. You know we, we have those great Bible stories that many have heard, but the prophecies of Daniel are the key to unlocking the book of Revelation in the New Testament. We're going to study that, and uh, the birds are here to help us this morning, so I'm, I'm really excited about where we're going. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 15, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, and put on your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? And then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary. The pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul, and your sons and your daughters, whom you have left behind, will fall by the sword. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache, and you will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads, and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn, and you will not weep, But you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done. You will do when it comes, and then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters? That on that day, he he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus, you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Well, Father, we know that you are the Lord. We worship you this morning, and we open up your word because we trust and believe in your authority over us, over this place, over our lives over our fellowship, we believe you are Lord, and so we come bowing before you, asking only Lord Jesus, that you will lead us in the way everlasting, that you will teach us to live with you in our hearts, to understand what that means, to have such a focus in our lives, Lord Jesus, that nothing else matters. I ask you, Father, that you'll teach us by your spirit and the word this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, just by a show of hands, have been married more than 20 years? Right. How many of you have been married more than 30 years? Show of hands. Same group. How How many have been married more than 40 years? How many have been married more than 50 years? (laughs) Hey, yesterday was Bill and Kayleen Sevieri's 50th anniversary, right? So congratulations, the two of you. Fifty years together, that's marvelous. I was thinking back this week to a Saturday night, August 13th, 1983. I was out on a date with the prettiest girl of my graduating high school class. I took her to see a tender and touching romance. Stephen King's Cujo. <laughs> okay, maybe that's a judgment call. I don't know. Or a call of poor judgment. But I uh, went to see that movie. Nothing romantic about a rabid St. Bernard on a mouth-foaming, bloody rampage. But, you know, the upside was it was a thriller. And so there was always the hope that she just might hold my hand. Or let me hold hers. Uh, but I held out. I played it cool. Stayed on my own armrest. And we ended up back at her folks' home, and we talked into the wee hours of the morning, and I went for broke. I asked her, how are you at long-distance relationships? Because I was about to leave for college in two weeks. And she said, I don't know, I've never been in one. Which wasn't real affirming to me one way or the other. (laughs) Three years later, I married that cute girl. And we've been married 27 years, but on Tuesday it'll be 30 years since we committed to each other. And I think about that date often. It's funny, I, you know. obviously the wedding anniversary is important and that's the day where, where I, we were official before man and God. But, but both Cheryl and I knew in our hearts on August 13th, there was just a sense, that's it, this is it, she's the one. I know that she thought I was the one. But I take (laughs) great joy. (laughs) I take great joy in that. I mean, Cheryl's my best friend. And the desire of my eyes and the delight of my heart. And I think Ezekiel would understand. I really believe he would understand. You know he was married. Uh, A lot of people don't know that, don't think about that maybe perhaps as much. We sometimes detach from biblical personalities and we we see them in a different light. He was a man. He was married just like so many of us. And we know very little about his marriage. What we know, we get from right here. But I can tell you with assurance that the prophet adored his wife. We know Ezekiel loved his wife very much. How do we know Verse 16, the Lord says, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes. It's a term of endearment in the Hebrew. The one that you are passionate about, the one who is alluring to you, the one whom you deeply love, I am about to take her from you. The Lord says the loss is going to be sudden. It's going to be tragic. In fact, He even uses the word blow. I'm going to take the desire of your eyes with a blow. The King James translation says a stroke. And perhaps she died of a stroke. Or of some kind of disease. We don't know, but it was quick. God tells Ezekiel in the morning, and that night, she's dead. It goes that fast. Her loss, his loss, was sudden and tragic. The word blow there, magifah in the Hebrew, means a plague, a pestilence, or a stroke. And God said, this is going to be a blow and it was a blow to the heart of Ezekiel what's interesting though is if you think about Ezekiel and then you put him in the place of all the rest of the prophets why didn't God uh, protect Ezekiel the way he protected Jeremiah you may recall God told Jeremiah in chapter 16 verse 2 of his prophecy you shall not take a wife for yourself nor have sons or daughters in this place why Lord because of the certainty of death and tragedy that is on the way God spared Jeremiah by saying no marriage for you because Jeremiah, it will just get bad. You're just going to be hurt. It'll just come as a blow. You're going to lose her and it'll all be over and it'll be sudden and it'll be painful. I don't want that for you. God was looking out for Jeremiah. And when we studied Jeremiah, I appreciated that. about How, how compassionate, how gracious of God to protect the prophet against such an imminent loss. So Lord, why didn't you do that for Ezekiel? Why not look out for Him? And to make matters worse, not only does God not protect him against this tragedy coming in His future that the Lord knew would come, but in addition to that, He doesn't allow Ezekiel to mourn. You shall not mourn her. She's going to die, and you've got to go about business as usual. Lord, why do you expect this of the prophet? The answer is not quick and easy. But it is profoundly important. That's why I believe this story has been preserved all the way to our generation. A few things to note. We know the background. We know the exact day of Mrs. Ezekiel's death. We know when the lady died. January fifteenth, 588 B.C. Because we know that January fifteenth, 588 B.C. was the day of the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. So for Ezekiel, the two tragedies would be forever linked. The loss of his country and the loss of his wife would happen on the same day. But the Lord directs Ezekiel to endure. Note this, to endure a silent suffering. A silent suffering. He says, groan silently. He says before that, about halfway through verse 16, you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, your tears shall not come groan silently, make no mourning for the dead, bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. Ezekiel was not allowed to weep or even take part in the funeral. He couldn't mourn. He couldn't evidence his sorrow. He couldn't let it out. Now, to understand this culturally, the mourner's head would be uncovered and dusted with ashes. The mourner walked barefoot, signifying desolation. They would wear a, a veil over the lower part of their face so that you couldn't see the lips trembling. And these were all uh, typical in the culture, traditional ways of mourning. The mourner ate Lachem Anoshim, the bread of men. Lachem Anoshim was funeral fare. You know, oftentimes we'll have a funeral and there will be a memorial service and and the food is is brought out and and we we sup together and we fellowship and and, and take a meal. And God said, I don't want you going to that meal. No lachem anoshim for you, Ezekiel. None of this. I was thinking about what Jesus said He'd do after the day of God's vengeance. Isaiah 61, verse 2, He said He'd comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So let me just say this to you right now. If you have ever faced a similar grief to Ezekiel's, if you have ever been in that place of heart-wrenching tragedy, remember, don't ever forget, a day is coming when all mourning is going to be replaced by garlands, gladness, and glorious worship. And the Father promises this to all of His people. But can you imagine not only a devastating loss like Ezekiel's, but can you imagine in such a place having to hold back the tears? Not being allowed to weep or emote. And God commands this of Israel. The atheist might look at this and say, see, God is heartless. Which is ironic because the atheist claims not to believe in God. (laughs) The agnostic, the critic, would say God is cruel and cold, and this is just another picture of that. The one thing they would fail to understand and fail to see is that God Himself was Ezekiel's comfort. God would be, in the heart of the man, the comfort that He needed. Second Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Something the world doesn't get. That life outside of Christ cannot uh, achieve, cannot attain, cannot take hold of, and that is the comfort of God that is promised to those, though you weep, though you mourn, there is a greater comfort from the Lord God than can be found in any human flesh than can be received anywhere else. Don't forget that. Sometimes we exhaust all avenues of comfort. Uh, Sometimes we, we exhaust all places of peace in tragedy. But remember, He's the God of all comfort, the One who comforts, as the Bible says, beyond all human understanding. You can't comprehend the comfort that God says He brings. Philippians four six. be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that. The peace that guards both heart and mind keeps my heart in its... Brokenness keeps my mind in its wandering, aching, the peace of God. But why must Ezekiel suffer silently? It's interesting that the Jewish Talmud claims that Ezekiel's silent suffering was an act of atonement for the people. He was to suffer silently and therefore atone for the sins of the people. Problem is, no man can do that. Nobody can atone. For your sins or for mine, and certainly not by sorrow. Sorrow cannot atone for sin. Guilt is not a cleansing agent. I think sometimes people think it is. If I just feel bad about my sin, that's enough. No, it's not. You will feel bad about your sin. I do feel guilt for things I've done wrong or for wronging other people, but that doesn't cleanse me. That doesn't make it okay. Nobody is going to feel bad their way into heaven. It's not going to be a lineup of people going, well, Lord, I just I feel awful about this. Can I come on in now? Well, I'm sorry, but sorrow is not an atoning device. And the sorrow of Ezekiel could not atone for the people. Sorrow can lead to repentance. But that's as far as it takes you. Only a sinless substitute can make atonement. So only Jesus... Ezekiel's suffering, unlike Talmud says, was not substitutionary as the suffering of Christ was. Ezekiel's suffering was symbolic. The text tells us about this. It was symbolic or a symbol of the people. Jeremiah said this back in Jeremiah 16 verse 7. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Jeremiah thought, Ezekiel now acts it out in real life before the people. This is what is going to be like. You're going to be in a place where you can't mourn in the midst of the most horrific tragedy. You can't even imagine that's coming. He says in verse 9, the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? Which speaks to me of the amazing selfishness of man. Here's Ezekiel, his wife has died. He cannot mourn. And they ask, "What does this mean for us? What does your pain mean for me? And isn't that so often how people think? How does this affect me? I, just, I can't go to that funeral because you know I, I can't handle all that, that heartache. Not about you, dude. you know? Well, I can't share in this person's life because it's, it's just too hard for me. Let's get out of ourselves, you know and, and think about the other. The people were so self-centered. And then I said to them, verse 20, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary. The pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters, whom you have left behind, will fall by the sword. He says, You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men, Lechem Anoshim, your turbans will be on your heads, your shoes will be on your feet, you will not mourn and you will not weep, but you will, not, but you will rot away in your iniquities and you will groan to one another, thus Ezekiel will be a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you will do, and when it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. He's a symbol of the people. Now enter that day, this particular day that is described in Ezekiel 24. The Lord informs Ezekiel that morning that his wife is about to die. What is he doing that morning? Well, if you're here Wednesday night, you know the first 14 verses, Ezekiel is preaching. He's acting out a sermon. He's The, the, the parable of the boiling pot, in which he gets a boiling pot, puts it on the flame, stokes the fire, and begins to drop into it choice pieces of meat. Meat on the bone and and good meat. Dropping it in it to boil it and cook it. But the rust that's in the pot begins to rise up to the surface. It's a picture of the blood that's coming in the time of judgment. The heat and the fires of judgment. So Ezekiel finds out that morning. And we don't know if it was before the parable or after the parable. But sometime that morning he finishes a sermon or he's in the midst and he gets the call. Your wife is dying and she will be gone tonight. In the middle of all of that. Ezekiel is role-playing this parable that will signify the two-year siege in Jerusalem and now the role-play moves into real life for the prophet as he will go through the greatest tragic loss of his life in front of the people and he will not be able to mourn just as those in Jerusalem will not mourn. Why won't they mourn? (laughs) After two years of siege and horror, every stomach in Judea would be starved out. Every eye would be cried out. Every heart would be worn out. Every mouth would be emptied out of the capacity to mourn. They would enter Babylonian captivity, those who survived like zombies. Which I know is popular today, but wasn't popular then. (laughs) They would come in completely desolated, unable to cry because their sorrow would be beyond that kind of mourning. There would be no time for that mourning in the land as they are being shuffled out. And so the Lord says symbolically, Ezekiel is a picture of the people. The death of the desire of your eyes will come as a blow, and then you, my people, you're going to look exactly like Ezekiel does right now. You know how even when someone is not outwardly mourning or weeping, you can still see the sorrow in their eyes. They could look at Ezekiel, I'm convinced, and see the pain. But he couldn't profess it. God says that's what it's going to be like. By the way, as I shared earlier, Ezekiel 25-32 through 32 contains a series of judgments and laments for the people, or for the for the nations, I mean. But from this day forward, something interesting happens. Following this tragedy in Ezekiel's life, following this horrible pain, Ezekiel's ministry changes. He no longer is the prophet of judgment. He becomes the prophet of all comfort. The prophet of consolation. And I think that's a beautiful picture for where our lives are called to go. When we have gone through pain and sorrow. Pain in the lives of God's people is this way, 2 Corinthians one five. just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance so also our comfort is abundance, abundant through Christ but if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation or if we are comforted it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer when you walk in the Lord as happens with Ezekiel and tragedy and pain comes it changes your ministry and all of that affliction and that pain and that suffering, that hurt changes a person. You can either become bitter or like Ezekiel, you can become a prophet of consolation. A person who brings comfort to others. I think the difference is the Spirit of God in your life. If you're walking in the Spirit before tragedy comes, when it hits, the Spirit brings that tragedy into a place of immense joy and peace fruit of the spirit becomes more pronounced the comfort of a follower of Christ after tragedy becomes very deep indeed so Ezekiel's silent sorrow is a symbol of the people but it's also I think something else think about this with me look at verse 22 again God says you will do as I have done now I know Ezekiel's talking And one way to take it is, you will do as I have done, you will not cover your mustache, you won't eat the bread of men, just like me, Ezekiel saying. But the Lord is speaking through Ezekiel here, you will do as I have done, and part of me wonders, is this not the Lord talking? What do you mean? Just as Ezekiel lost his wife, so the Lord is about to lose his. Because if you study through the Hebrew Scriptures, you understand God viewed Israel as His wife. Israel the wife of God. And so in the tragedy about to befall Judah, in the fall of the temple as His people are driven out, this isn't just, oh, I'm going to punish my foolish children. This is my wife. And the Lord would suffer silently at the loss that He must endure even as His people were driven out of the land. It's a picture, I believe, of the deep, deep sorrow of God. A sorrow felt over every lost soul in Jerusalem a sorrow I still believe God feels over every lost soul ever to die in this world. God said, remember this from last Sunday, Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord. Rather that he should turn from his ways and live. I have, verse 32, no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. It pains the heart of the Lord. And the difference between Ezekiel's sorrow and God's sorrow? Ezekiel's sorrow was only temporary. God's sorrow is an eternal sorrow. How so? Well, Isaiah 65 verse 17 tells us, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. God, by His great grace, will do something in us, a special move of His Spirit, where the pain of the past, or the heartache of the past, or even the the, the ache over people lost, will no longer be remembered. He's not going to wipe clean the hard drive. It's not like we're not going to remember each other at all. All of a sudden we're like, what? I don't know, where. what is this? But He's going to wipe away all tears, Revelation tells us. Every tear. The only way you can take away every tear is also to take away the memory of pain. God says, I'm going to do that for you. But that grace, gang, that God, I believe, gives us, I don't think that's going to affect Him. Personally, I I would assume that the Lord is going to remember through all eternity every person who is not with us everyone who is not saved. I don't mean that He's going to be bummed out for all eternity, but that He sees with with a compassion that we do not understand. An eternal awareness that we don't get. Our sorrow over loss is based on a temporary understanding of the desire of our eyes. And this is part of the text as well. The desire of our eyes is brief, it's momentary, it's fleeting. It is not long-term. Those who have been married over 50 years... We sit here and we go, wow, praise the Lord, What a, that's wonderful, what a blessing. It's temporary. In the scheme of eternity, it's fleeting. It is, it's almost nothing by comparison. James tells us in James 4.14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Hold that thought for a moment and read on. Look at verse 25. As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their hearts delight, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. On that day your mouth will be open to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean that Ezekiel suddenly went mute? Well... I guess it could, probably not. Some think maybe Ezekiel went mute for two years during the whole siege and and didn't speak until after the siege. And yet, immediately following this, we have several judgments and laments that will follow. Now, that also may be judgments and laments that came at a different time, but Ezekiel inserts them here. But the bottom line is, what is muted in the mouth of Ezekiel is judgment. Judgment. From this point forward, Ezekiel will never again speak judgment against Jerusalem. Because the die is cast. The judgments of Jerusalem at this point are curbed. They go mute. But note again what he says in verse 25. As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold? That would be what, Bible students? What's their stronghold? I would say the temple. Jerusalem, but the temple. Because the temple, we've talked about this, the temple is what the people believed was their security. As long as the glorious temple is standing, we're fine. Because God's there, so we're good. They hadn't seen what Ezekiel had already seen. That was the departure of the Spirit of God. As long as that edifice is standing, we're in good shape, we're fine. He says, I'm going to take their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes and their hearts delight. This is an inherent warning here against what I would call, secondly, if you're taking notes, a short-lived sweetness. A short-lived sweetness. The temporariness of good things in our life. Things that will come and go quickly. I, I heard this last week a demo song that John Lennon wrote back in 1980. The words may be familiar to you. Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. When our time has come, Lennon writes, we will be as one. God bless our love. God bless our love. Lennon died one year after he wrote that song. And so John Lennon and Yoko Ono would not grow old together as he had hoped. Ezekiel never got to experience growing old with his wife. Do you know his marriage was short? Ezekiel at the time of his wife's death was, death was 35 years old. So he did not grow old with her. They had not had 20 years, 30 years, 40 or 50 years of marriage together. A short time together when his wife was suddenly taken. And I point that out to ask this question, what is the source of your security? Wives, is it? Is it your husbands? Husbands, is it your wives? Is that where you find your greatest strength, your your stronghold, if you will? Is it a relationship? Is it our country? (laughs) Or maybe is it the joy of your pride, the desire of your eyes, your heart's delight? God calls these things a stronghold. And I don't think that's in a positive way. The word there in the Hebrew is ma'ots, and ma'ots is a fortress, a fortress, a place of security. This is where I go for my security. And again, he's probably talking about the temple that they believed was their security, was their joy, their pride, their desire. It was the delight, was this structure, rather than God their Savior. That's where their hope was. And the Lord would show them that this was short-lived. So again, what is your stronghold? What's your fortress? What are you trusting for your security? I have to return to this passage. We read it a lot. 1 John 2.15. John writes, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world's passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. As I mentioned at the outset, my marriage is my strongest relationship. Cheryl is my best friend. She's the one who knows everything that there is to know about me, things you would not want to know about me, she knows about me. Cheryl brings me my greatest joy. Joy. She is the desire of my eyes. She delights my heart. However, if I'm understanding the Lord correctly here, Cheryl cannot be my security. What happens if I lose her? What do I do the morning after she's gone? How how do I stand? How do I live? How do I go on? Paul said, interesting, in 1 Corinthians 7.29, This I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. What? Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. The point Paul is getting at is not that you should suddenly grow cold in your marriage, gentlemen. But what he's saying is you should live not trusting in that for your safe place. Ladies not believing that your husband will always be there to take care of things. But for all of us, that our security is not in the things of this world, and guess what? Even marriage is a thing of this world, because Jesus says in the resurrection, men will not be married. Like it's just different. How so, Jesus? Well, you'll see. But it's going to be different. It's not going to be what we think it is. John Lennon was wrong. You know, we'll be we'll be one in that day. No, probably not. There are all kinds of good things in this world. Things that we delight in. Things that are truly joyful things. A blessed marriage. A great job. I got the greatest job in the world. It's temporary. I'm not resigning. (laughs) A cool place to meet and fellowship and worship like like a barn. But all these things are transitory. All of these things must be and will end. And so we rightly mourn the loss. But how do you go, like Ezekiel, how do you go from morning to morning? How do you get up the next day without carrying on that incredible gut-wrenching mourning that should come with it? Look at what he does in verse 18. It's stunning. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died, and in the morning... I did as I was commanded. I preached this morning. Found out my wife was going to die. She died. The next morning I got up, I preached. It's not the first time a man of God had to do that, by the way. You can read back in Leviticus chapter 10, on the day that Aaron was consecrated as the high priest. And his sons, his boys were there, Nadab and Abihu. A proud moment for Aaron to be consecrated high priest of Israel. His son's consecrated. created, They go in and they prepare to offer sacrifice and, and to go about the ministry that they're called to on that glorious day. And Nadab and Abihu have probably been tipping back a bit. And they offer up what the Bible just calls strange fire. Not fire ordained by the Lord. Not fire offered by the Lord or asked for by the Lord. But they take their little fire pans and they offer up their own little whoo We're doing our own thing over here. And fire comes out of the tabernacle and burns them to a crisp. They were not fired that day. They were fried that day. <laughs> And we can look back historically and and there's some humor to it, but it's a dark humor. Stop and think. You're Aaron. And you watch as your sons suddenly are burned to death and drop dead. And immediately Moses is there at your right side saying, do not mourn. Don't stop what you're doing. You are consecrated. You're anointed. You finish your job. You do your ministry. And Aaron was not allowed to mourn. Aaron had to continue on in his priestly Service. He could not display weeping for the loss of the delight, the desire of his eyes, his boys. What is up with this, Lord? (laughs) I mean, it just seems heavy. For both men, you've got to understand for Aaron, for Ezekiel, and for others, this is more than just a ministry before them. And this is what I really want you to hear this morning. There was a calling. On their lives. There was a calling that superseded all other things. For Aaron, that superseded the lives of his children. For Ezekiel, that superseded the love for his wife. For Aaron, it was the call to the priesthood. For Ezekiel, the call to prophetic ministry. And for you and for me, it is the call to partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are called to have supersede every other thing. That if I understand the Bible correctly in this, we are called to love Christ far more than we love anything else in our lives. And it is a calling. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you now have a calling on you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. From the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I love that word calling or called. Because in the Greek New Testament, the word called is kaleo. kaleo. So He kaleo you. He called you, Paul says. But Jude in his little letter, in the very first verse refers to the called. You are the called. The kleitos. Which is a a, a variation of the word kleo, called. You're the called. You're a certain type of people now. What does this mean? It's what He did, and it's who we are. Okay. He called, and we are the called. He did the calling, and we become the called. And if you're called to the Gospel, if you are among the called, the Kletos, you are, listen, you are called to carry on. No matter what happens in life, regardless of any changes, no matter how great, big, tragic, you are called to carry on. Which brings me to the third and final point, the steadfast saint. The steadfast saint. And it's answering this question. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. But the question is, how could Ezekiel do that? What was it in him that allowed him to receive the tragedy of the loss of his wife and the next morning to be up doing his ministry? How could this man carry on? Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Faith to carry on. Steadfastness in your walk with Jesus. And so again, we see Ezekiel up the morning after his tragic loss, doing as he was commanded. Let's make this really simple. This idea of endurance, of steadfastness. The steadfast saint, again, is one for whom nothing and no one matters more than the call of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. I love my wife more than anyone in the world. But she cannot be more important to me than the call of Christ on my life. He supersedes. He is first. He is always first. Must be first. How do you do that? Jesus said... In a shocking teaching, Luke fourteen twenty six, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... And it's easy to hate brothers and sisters, okay?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but wife and children? And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, how can you say that? Well, you're telling us, love God and love people. How does that jive... And what he's doing is he's pushing the envelope of priority. Your priority with me. It means your love for Jesus Christ, your desire to follow Him and be with Him is so great that even your greatest love pales by comparison. Even your highest love in life, second to Jesus, looks like hate. That's what he's drawing there. That's what we have been called to. A love for Jesus that just... Blanketly, it supersedes every other thing. My own personal life challenges pale. My hardships, my losses, my transitions, my pain, my friends, my family, my wife must not subvert the calling of Christ on my life. That's how Ezekiel got up the next morning and went about ministry. That's how he was in the pulpit the very next day was the highest calling in his life, was the calling of Christ Jesus the calling of the Lord but that's not fair ask John Corson about fair those of you who know the story of Pastor John Corson his first wife Terry died at the age of 28 just after they had moved to southern Oregon to plant a church for the Lord his wife dies they are on a slick road in the ice car goes off the road, she's killed he crawls up the road doesn't even know what it has happened loses his first wife Twelve years later, his 16-year-old daughter Jessie died on the exact same road the exact same way. And John preached the funeral for his daughter. You can see it online. Go to ApplegateChristianFellowship.org and you can watch where John Corson does the teaching at the funeral of his own 16-year-old daughter. It's unbelievable. Not fair. Ask Levi Lusco about fair. You all may recall this. His five-year-old daughter, Linya died of an asthma attack five days before Christmas. Three days after she died, Levi Lusco preached the Christmas Eve service at their church. How do you do that? His call to Christ was higher even than his love for his daughter. Does life's sorrows neutralize your faith? Or Rather, does faith overcome sorrows? As Levi asked, does my theology formed in the sunshine still function in the shade of night? Ask Ezekiel about fair, who is called to watch his wife die and get up and preach the next morning. Ask Jesus about fair, who was sinless and yet suffered unspeakable sorrow on the cross, bearing all the sorrow that you have ever felt or will ever feel to secure our salvation and to save us from our sins. And three days later, He was up too. He got up that morning from the dead that we might have eternal life. And so the way to turn mourning into mourning, sorrow into a sermon, my aching into true ministry, is to be about the commands of the Lord and it is simple as one thing. Listen to how David put it. Psalm 27, verse 4. I love this verse. One thing I have asked of the Lord. Just one. I already like the verse because I can follow that. It's not a five-point sermon. It's not a 12-point outline. It's not 27 ways to get to where you're going. It's just one thing. That I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That's all I want. David says, Just one thing. I love that. It's not a bunch of requests. I mean, how often do you do that? Well, Lord, oh, boy, where do I start? (laughs) The list is long, so let's just begin. David said, just one thing that I desire. Can you get one thing in your life? Can you just get one thing? Do a study sometime. It's fascinating. The one thing verses in Scripture. Like Luke chapter 10, verse 41, when Jesus said to Martha, Martha, you're worried about and bothered about so many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Or John chapter 9, verse 25, we read this last week. The blind man, actually the not blind man anymore, said, One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. That's my one thing. Philippians 3.13, Paul said, One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. I am going forward. I'm going to worship in His temple. I'm going to be in His presence. I am doing one thing. I am pressing on. Marge Kimball came up to me on a little bit earlier today. And she shared something with me i got to share with you. She said, my husband was taken from me within the month of our 56th anniversary. And she said, the day after he died, the Lord gave me a verse. Let me read it to you. It's Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your husband is your maker. You get that? For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife forsaken and grieved in a spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you says, the Lord, your Redeemer. Wow. The Lord's your husband. And Marge said, I didn't know what I was going to do until that verse was given to me. And she said, then I knew. It wasn't my husband. He was not my strength. He was not my security. He was not my hope. One thing. The Lord. And so... Ezekiel says I spoke to the people in the morning in the evening my wife died and in the morning I did as I was commanded close your Bibles for a moment we've been having some great conversations and prayer and preparation thinking about the days ahead such as they will be what the Lord allows and I want to share with you all this is so important it's so simple But the secret of steadfast living, the secret of dealing with whatever comes your way in life, is one thing. You are called to be in Christ. That's what matters. Everything else in our lives, temporal. What that means is that Jesus is the joy of your pride. You're proud of something? Be proud of the Lord. Galatians 6.14 May it be that I would never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world's dead to me. All the things that are offered in this world, that doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. He's the joy of my pride. He's the desire of my eyes. He's the one that we fix our eyes on. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one, Paul says, that we will receive a crown and the future is laid up for me the crown of righteousness and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Can't wait to see Him. Why? He's the desire of my eyes. And Jesus is your heart's delight. One thing I have asked, and this I seek, that I might see your beauty that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. So what's the deal here? Well, our fellowship is entering a season of change. Big changes. Stuff on the horizon. Some of these are going to bring a sense of sorrow and loss. We're about to transition into something new. He's talking about the building, hun. Well, yeah, partially. We're going to leave this barn. Don't let it be your stronghold. This is not where the Holy Spirit goes on North Whidbey Island. Oh, he's here, but he's not stuck. (laughs) We may need to shift a little bit, move around worship, meeting schedules. That could freak some people out. We may have to move second service to 1030. (laughs) Your chair may not be where you're used to it being in the new sanctuary. I can't worship like this!
1: <laughs>
0: New ministries are being birthed all the time. Don't let that freak out the calling of your ministry. Yeah, but his ministry is doing so much better than mine. Just do yours. Even if it's piddly, do it. You know? Other changes are coming too. Pain. Peace. There's going to be persecutions. I guarantee there's going to be persecutions. Days are coming of great gain for this fellowship and great loss among us. Joy and sorrow are in the offing. It's been said that the only constant in life is change. That's mostly true. Except for one thing. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And so we lock into Jesus, our one thing. We trust Him with all that we are. We put Him exalted above all other things. In the evening, the desire of our eyes may pass away. There, there, like I said, there's going to be sorrow for some of us leaving this barn. I love the barn. This is the coolest place I've ever done church. But this is not the church. This is the church. And I'm... Hoping and praying you're all going to be over there just like you're here. Because if you show up here, you're going to be awfully bored just you yourself and the back wall. And the
1: birds.
0: (laughs) Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. Gang, in the morning, regardless of the difficulty, the tragedy of the night before, in the morning, let's get up and do as we've been commanded. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as simple as this one thing is, we need Your Holy Spirit to do it. Because I know I'm not the only one here for whom life is just a series of distractions. There are always so many things that need to be done and so many other ways of doing things. And and I always find myself, Lord, caught doing certain things that are so important to me and yet they're just not going to last. Father, I pray that You would attract our attention to the one thing that is lasting, and that being Jesus. I pray that our focus, our faith, for everyone here, for our children as well, Father, that our eyes would be on Him. And Jesus, that You you would be preeminent over everything else. We need Your Holy Spirit to do this in our hearts, and so I ask You for that. I I ask You for a fresh outpouring and anointing of Your Spirit on this church fellowship, on each of our lives, That we could walk in trust and in faith and in excitement, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what is before us. In Jesus' name,
1: Amen.